Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. There have been quite a few surprise winners during NASCAR's 74-year history, but one particular Cup Series race at Talladega Super Speedway on August 11, 1981, produced possibly the most memorable finish ever and is still being talked about 41 years later. Darrell Waltrip, driver of Junior Johnson's number 11 Buick, and Terry Labonte in the Billy Hagen-owned number 44 Chevrolet were door handle to door handle on the final lap with their feet pushed hard into the floorboard. Waltrip seemed to have the race won, but in the final turn, third place rookie driver Rob Richard dove to the inside and took it three wide across the start finish line to win what was his first Cup Series race by a bumper. The crowd, 80,000 strong, went wild. Waltrip and Labonte never saw him coming, having concentrated solely on one another, prompting Waltrip to say later, where did he come from? Burchard had his first Cup Series win and only in his 11th career start. He would go on to win Rookie of the Year in 1981, but Talladega would remain the only victory of his career. A side story to all this was a major power transfer outage that affected the entire East Coast during the national television broadcast, but audio wasn't lost. Many of Burchard's fans in the Northeast didn't get to see the Cinderella finish, but only heard Ken Squire of CBS Sports make the call. More than one flower pot and six pack of beer went through television screens that day. Bouchard's father, Bob, tossed his entire TV set through the living room wall. Bouchard described the win by saying, when we first got there, Buddy Baker told me that one of the differences at this track was when you come off of turn four, you have to remember the start finish line wasn't at the trioval, but rather 1,250 feet further down towards turn one. Richard knew that he had plenty of time to try that draft move on Labonte and Waltrip. I got the draft move off pretty good, and then by the time I passed, I remember thinking as I crossed the stripe, well, that son of a gun Baker did talk about this very thing, and it happened just exactly like he said it would. In all, Bouchard completed 160 Cup Series races with 19 top fives, 60 top tens, and three pole positions. He drove for three Cup Series car owners during his career, the majority of them with team owner Jack Beebe of the number seven Raceville Farms Buicks. He retired from driving in NASCAR's Premier Series in 1987. And sadly, we lost Richard on December 10th, 2015, after a long illness. The 1981 Talladega 500 was truly one of NASCAR's greatest races. Then episode number 47 of the Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. That's what we're doing today. And uh, 
Now, after last week, we had so much fun with the episode 46, and we're going to have even more fun, I think, with episode 47. It just keeps on building and building. Each episode gets more and more fun. And so, and the, you know, the one, I guess the best way to start off with uh, for this week's show is the number 47, you know, it, it, it's been around for quite some time, but it's kind of surprising that there's really only been three drivers that have ever won a NASCAR Cup race in the number 47. Ben, you're our, you're our number one historian. You take over and tell us about the number 47 and what made it so unique and you know where it's at today, too, as well. Well, I sure can, Jerry. And uh, like I say, we have a lot of fun doing these uh, just because it's a little bit of history about NASCAR and a little, little bit of tidbit information. But as far as number 47, there was a gentleman by the, by the name of Jack Smith from Atlanta, Georgia, uh, who ended up with 18 victories in NASCAR. We're going to talk about Jack a little bit later in the show. But uh, yeah, Jack Smith uh, handled the number 47 for many years. And then, of course, a couple of names probably a little more familiar with us, actually one of these, uh, A.J. Allmendinger uh, uh, drove number 47 uh, to victory back, I believe, in 2019, I think. And then, uh, of course, there's a guy back in 1981, the, the person that I talked about in our lead-in for the today's, or today's show, uh, uh, which was Ron Burchard and then number 47, his victory at Talladega. And, uh, yeah, 47 is a prominent number. It goes back way back to uh, the 1960s, early 1960s. And uh, Jack Smith won a lot of races with it, just the number I, you know, he drove and, and chose uh, to run throughout his NASCAR career. And uh, just somebody that uh, was very well respected uh, in, in the NASCAR world and uh, drove for, for many years and mm-hmm. uh, drove his own cars as well as driving for a lot of other driver, other, other team owners, I should say. You know, I, I've got to admit, you know, I've been following NASCAR for quite a number of years, but Jack Smith, you know, like you mentioned, he was, you know, in the early um, 60s, primarily the one in his cup career. Um, it kind of surprised me when you, when you uh, chose it or when we saw when you show me his name and the number of wins he has 18 wins. I mean, that's a lot of wins. And I don't think, you know, from my perspective, you know, you've been around a lot longer covering the sport. I mean, did Jack Smith really ever get the uh, the notoriety that he probably deserved? Cause, I mean, if you've got 18 cup wins, that's that's pretty stout. Yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, he's in several halls of fame. Uh, around the NASCAR community, one, the National Motorsports Press Association. He is in there. Uh, yeah, but he had a lot of starts in, in NASCAR uh, throughout his uh, career. And like I say, he's from Atlanta, Georgia, originally. He had 264 starts in the sport. He covered uh, in, in the sport for 15 seasons. Uh, actually, he was there from 1949, the first season that NASCAR was in operation, to 1964, uh, 21 total victories, 95 top fives, 142 top tens, and scored 23 pole positions. And uh, one of the most memorable victories I think he had was uh, when Bristol Motor Speedway opened uh, in the summer of 1961. Mm-hmm. Uh, had a little help that day from a gentleman by the name of Johnny Allen. And Johnny drove a good portion of that race, but and it's still the same today. If you start a race and then get out of the race car and you get somebody else in the car, uh, the driver who starts the race uh, gets the victory. And I know that's happened several times uh, throughout NASCAR history. I remember one race in 1978 where uh, Donnie Allison was driving for Haas Ellington at Talladega 
and got sick, feeling bad in the car. And uh, Daryl Waltrip had already gotten out of the car, out of his car because of engine issues. And uh, Daryl got in to Donnie's car and took the car to victory lane. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Donnie got the credit for the victory. That's the last time in NASCAR history, I believe it was, has happened, was August of 1978. There's been a long, long time since it happened, but that it would still apply today. If you had something happen, say, you know, in the Daytona 500 coming up uh, for 2022, if you say had Chase Elliott fall out and you had Kyle Larson have a problem in the car and and Kyle was to get out and Chase get in the car, Kyle Larson would get the victory. But mm -hmm. in this day and time, the, the drivers are so physically fit and the cars are so well-tuned and it'd be very rare to see something like that happen, but it could happen. It could happen. And so, but yeah, talking about Jack Smith though, he was a very well-respected uh, individual uh, throughout NASCAR history. And the time he was here, sadly, we lost Jack on these, uh, I'm sorry, October 17, 2001. Uh, according to Racing Reference, uh, he was actually, his hometown was Sandy Springs, Georgia. A lot of times he was referred to as coming from Atlanta, Georgia, but Sandy Springs, Georgia was his hometown. And mm -hmm. I met Jack uh, many years ago, I guess the late, uh, mid to late 90s at an NMPA function. And just super, super nice gentleman. Uh, just loved his racing, loved, very good family man, just uh, just a great guy. I just really enjoyed meeting him and, and, uh, uh, kind of a, a little bit big guy, heavy set guy, but boy, he, I tell you what, he could sure drive a race car at Pontiac, Chevrolet's, Studebaker's a few times in the early days. And, uh, just a super, super individual really enjoyed meeting him and talking to him. And he used to come to all, a lot of those functions year after year. Great guy. Right. You know, I'm looking at, uh, like, as you alluded to a minute ago about his uh, career record on racingreference.info. And, you know, it kind of surprises me that, you know, in 57, with the year I was born, ironically enough, um, he finished fifth in the standings and he, he raced in only 40 of the 53 races that year. And then the following year in 58, he raced in 39 of 51 races, finished fifth again. And then in, uh, where is it at here? 1962, he raced in 51 of the 53 races. He finished fourth. If he would have had a few more races in those respective years, I have to wonder if this guy would, you know, have come close to potentially, you know, vying for a championship in, the, in those years. What do you think? Um, yeah, I think, I think so. Uh, very consistent. If you look at those numbers, mm -hmm. uh, he, he was very consistent as far as top fives and top tens. And right. every time he get, he would get on a short track or super speedway. He was, he was favored to win. And, uh, just someone who could, uh, basically get anybody's car. Like mm -hmm. I say, he drove his own cars and he drove for several team owners during those years. And just a top favorite to win every time he went somewhere, whether again, whether it be a short track or intermediate track, super speedway track. Uh, yeah, he was very good at anything he drove and, and just, uh, for throughout his career, throughout, those 15 years, someone that team owners relied on. And also he, you know, as, as you see today, a lot of times, maybe not as much today, but there were times you see the Ricky Rudds and the Jeff Bodines and, and even the Brett Bodines to say, I, you know, I've enjoyed driving for some other guys, but I think I could do it as good or better as a team owner. Right. Exactly. And so they would take that on. And, and, you know, you see that sometimes in the sixties, right? Rex White did it. Uh, Jack Smith did it. Lots of different guys did it in, in that era as well. So, yeah, just uh, some guys would enjoy 
Drive Brothers and say, I don't want the financial responsibility of killing a team. And then other times uh, they would say, uh, no, let me try it myself. And Jack was one of those that did it. Right. You know, one thing, and and I've, I've talked about this to a few people over the years, and it's kind of six of one, half a dozen the other in terms of the way I, the responses I've gotten back from people. To me, when I look at a driver's overall record and, you know, we're kind of like where my dividing line is it between whether they were a successful driver or not, is I like to compare the number of top 10 finishes they had versus the number of starts they had. And, you know, looking at Jack Smith, I mean, this is the perfect example of why I've always thought this is very crucial. And you mentioned it a minute ago about the consistency. He had 264, I'm, I'm sorry, 200, yeah, 264 cup starts in 142 top 10s. I mean, more than half of his uh, finishes were in the top 10. And to me, that is not just consistency. That's just, you know, that's really a darn good racer. And, you know, the other thing too about Jack, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember hearing this at some point that Jack Smith, even though he was from Sandy Springs, Georgia, he did have a lot of um, impact, if you will, or a lot of uh, influence uh, um, among one uh, guy you may have heard from Georgia, a guy from uh, a guy otherwise known as Awesome Bill from Dawsonville, Bill Elliott. I know he's talked in the past about Jack Smith as well. It was a little bit before uh, Bill's time, but not really that much. I mean, Bill, I think, may have seen Jack race early in his career and, um, or, you know, in the latter part, I should say, of uh, Jack's career. But I think that, you know, that showed that, uh, you know, Bill Elliott, if he learned anything from Jack Smith, he learned some lessons pretty well, too, as well. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. And, you know, interestingly enough, interestingly enough, you know, being from Georgia, Dale, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, Jack Smith was there. And then, of course, the Elliots being there from Georgia. And, you know, they all kind of stick together right. in, in there. And, uh, I, yeah, they were, I, you know, and it'd be interesting to find out if uh, you know, Jack Smith may at some point have maybe even raced for for George Elliott at some time, you know, because, I mean, he fielded some cars mm -hmm. uh, in the Cup Series uh, for other drivers before they became so prominent as as a Bill become prominent as a driver and then Ernie and Dan fielding those cars. And uh, so it's very possible that he could have done that. So, yeah, they were, they were very close-knit, all those Georgia drivers on the short tracks. And, uh, uh, and then they moved up to the Cup Series uh, in the mid seventies. So yeah, it's very possible that that's, that could have been. Exactly. Sure. We, we always hear so much about, you know, like the Alabama gang, you know, the, uh, the Allison's and red farmer and those folks, but I mean, there's also was a Georgia gang, if you will, you know, I mean, there were a lot of good drivers that came out of, out of Georgia, the peach, the peach state, if I remember correctly. Right. Yes. Not bad, for, not bad for a Yankee. I remember that. No, <laughs> no, no. You're right on the money there, Jerry. You that's, got right, it, right? that's right. We well, you know, you know, in looking at, Jack Smith, I mean, again, a driver that to me did not get as much recognition as he should have because of his record. I mean, you know, a lot of people we talk about, you know, all the big names of the 70s, 80s and 90s, but he was before a lot of these guys. But, yeah, I mean, he he went against some of the best of the best. I mean, Rich, he went against Richard Petty. I mean, he went, went against uh, Pearson. You know, he went against, uh, you know, the Yarboroughs early on. And, uh, you know, he just really had a, a flare and a neck that I think a lot of people, uh, you know, 
if they weren't aware of him or are not aware of him, you know, it might be behoove them to take a look at his record because his record is pretty darn good. And, you know, to me, when you have 18 wins and you have a hundred and some uh, top 10 finishes, 140 some top 10 finishes out of 264 starts to me, that's, that's hall of fame worthy. What, what do you think yeah. about that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, Something to think about, too. I mean, and I, I take nothing away from the schedules of the drivers that were doing it today at 30, what, six races. But these guys back in the 50s and 60s, you're, you know, you're pulling your car behind a truck. Uh, not not the daily, these transporters that we're looking at today, mm-hmm. but you're going to places like I'm just looking at a list here, like, you know, Weaverville and then uh, North Carolina, then you go, you're pulling to Detroit, you're going back to Jacksonville, Florida, and you're going to Atlanta, Mobile, Alabama, West Palm Beach. Uh, and this is some, this is looking at Jack's record here, going to Macon and Darlington, mm-hmm. and back to Atlanta, Daytona Beach, I mean, Savannah and Macon and, and Morristown. And I mean, goodness gracious, you're, you're going all over the place, yeah. Lehigh, Pennsylvania all over the map here and and you're you know and these are all points races if you want to be a champion and you're not looking at you know seven eight million bucks to win a championship in these years you're looking at oh gosh you know 50 or seventy five thousand dollars so the point i'm trying to make here is that you're looking at schedules of 55 or 58 races a year uh and trying to hop skip and a jump monday wednesdays and fridays and a really long schedule uh, and so you got to take your hat off to these guys. You got to give them credit for the uh, consistency and, and just the, the want to, to be able to pull these things all around and, and the, uh, what all they faced in these years, mm-hmm. trying to come up with championship seasons uh, with one car, not a car up on the hauler and you don't have a lounge and you don't have a jet, you don't have a, a, a you know, a stable of engineers. Yep. You don't, they don't fly you in to drive the car and fly you home and all that kind of stuff. These guys, it was sort of like a circus mentality in those days where you're going from town to town, to town, to town, these little towns. And, uh, you know, it's funny because a lot of times in those days, what would happen is you go to the local carnival and a race would break out. That's kind of the way it would work. <laughs> you know, it wasn't to just go to a race uh, per se. That was sort of the sideshow in those days. And mm-hmm. until it got to be more popular. And then, of course, then you'd see the bigger super speedways like a Darlington, like a Raleigh Speedway or or that kind of thing. And then in, in the late 60s is when the, the track boom sort of started, when you'd have the, the Michigans, uh, those types of tracks that they'd start building Texas World Speedway, and uh, suddenly that became the the big show, not the sideshow. A lot of those dirt tracks in those days were, like I said, they were sideshows to something else, and the purses weren't that great. And then early in in the late 50s, mid 50s, sometimes what you'd run into, even in the the 40s too, what you'd run into is you'd have the, the guy who would take up the purse money and before the race ended, he'd he'd cut a trail and he'd leave. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they'd have to hire a guy to stand with him with right. a pistol on his side right. to make sure that guy didn't leave, to make sure they had a purse to race for, because many times that kind of thing happened. And that's why Bill Frank Sr. got involved in this to say, look, I want you to make sure that you have money at the end of the day to to so we can pay you. Cause that happened a lot in those days. 
they take the money and run at lap 250 of a or 100 laps of a 200 lap race. He's gone. He's got he's in his big Chrysler and he's cutting the trail. And there's <laughs> dust. There's dirt flying from the back of his big car. He's out of there. And, you know, so that it was kind of a shyster mentality in those days. And right, right, right. so so that's what Bill France Sr. did. He wanted to bring some type of business like uh, to mentality to solidify this this thing called racing. Right. And so back to Jack Smith, that's the kind of thing these guys had to face every week. Am I going to get paid for driving 600 miles across country to race 200 laps? Right. And, and so you have to you have to really be strong at uh, and and strong willed and i i tell you the truth i wouldn't want to face those guys you know they were they were pretty brutal uh, hard-nosed hard drinking in some cases right you know i better better have the guy there with the money when i get done because <laughs> i've just driven 150 hard laps and beat the fenders off of this car that's right those times yeah so that was what jack smith and all these guys faced and, you know, I, I, you have to give credit, a lot of credit to guys like Jack Smith, you know, the, the independent drivers, the, you know, they, they own their own teams for the, you know, the primarily back in the day. And like you said, I mean, they would go, you know, short distances, they'd go long distances. Some guys would go across country and, you know, they'd, they'd probably pick up a few races here or there along the way, you know, maybe barnstorming just to help pay for the bills. Yeah, exactly. And, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, I miss those things. I mean, I'm probably showing my age by saying this, but I miss the independence. I mean, the last big independent, and I know there's been more since him. I, I get it, but to me, what the guy who will always be the last true independent was Alan Kowicki. You know, I mean, when mm-hmm. he when he won the championship in in uh, in ninety one, I guess it was, uh, or no, I'm sorry, ninety two. Um, you know, that just kind of verified how he was able to, you know, fulfill the dreams he had. I mean, he, you know, from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, you know, he was a big racer in the, in the uh, upper Midwest for several years. And then he decided to go, you know, take himself. He towed his car, his race car behind him all the way down to North Carolina. He wanted to make his fame and fortune. He did. And unfortunately, you know, he passed away much too sooner because I think that if he had not died in uh, on April 1st of 93, I think that Alan Kowicki would have been, you know, probably a multi-champion. There's no doubt in my mind. But again, you know, he's the same kind of guy like a Jack Smith and many, many others who, you know, they, uh, well, even though Kowicki did get some good sponsorship with Hooters and and others, you know, as he uh, made more of a name for himself down in the South. But I mean, it's at the same time, you know, to, to run your own operation, to, you know, be the guy that, you had to answer yourself in the mirror. That's the kind of thing that I, I miss a lot of these days. And Jack Smith and Alan Kowicki were perfect examples of that. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that, Jerry. So you're dead on. That's a great example because, yeah, and you have two choices, as I said before. You could drive for somebody else or you could start your own team. And I right. think there's benefits to both of those. And uh, I think Jack took the took the uh, the route of, okay, I just want to drive and, and be my own boss. Yep. I, I know I can make this work. And so many drivers have tried that. It worked in those days, but but money was relative in the 60s versus now. Uh, either way, it, it, when you're the boss, you got to really count the numbers and you got to make it work. Uh, if you're a hired driver, you a lot of responsibilities on your shoulders. And it is on, on both respects. Mm-hmm. You, you got to make it work either way. But talking about Allen, though, I mean, he was a, a mechanical engineer. He he knew what had to be done. He was all the time calculating the numbers. 
he was difficult to work for. And there's and one of your buddies, uh, somebody that you have a, and we both do a great deal of respect for Ray Everham, mm-hmm. you know, Ray worked for, for, uh, for Alan. And he told me flat out, he said, Ray, I mean, uh, uh, Alan was very difficult to work for and, but he knew what he wanted and he had to stick to that mentality to be successful. And you had to have really, really thick skin to work for Alan. He was a good man, but he's, he's like, you had to know, your stuff and you weren't going to hang out with him very long because right, he yeah. had, he just had to know. I mean, he, he was, it wasn't personal. It's like, look, I got too much on the line here. We don't have time to mess around. We've got to get this done. And ironically, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me about Allen was when he won that championship in 92, he really, really, really shuffled the cards in NASCAR's cup series because he proved to people that no, you don't need three times the people right. in a championship. Right. I mean, he had like a dozen people tops counting the, the young lady in the, at the front desk. Yep. Really, he didn't have anybody and because right. he didn't have the money to have anybody. And suddenly all these other top teams like, and, and they were having to answer to these big sponsors. So, okay, well, why are we paying you this kind of money? Because he just proved to you that you can do it without having to spend the money that we're paying you. So what are we going to do now? Right. Exactly. And it kind of, you know, it's kind of tough on, you know, Alan gets to Daytona and he's getting some cold shoulders down there <laughs> because it's like, okay, buddy, you're messing us up here. He's so, just a Yankee. That's all he is. He's a Yankee. There you go. <laughs> you know, I guess, I mean, it's just, he was proving that you don't need three times the people to do it, uh, to win a championship. And so, that was the unique thing about Allen, and uh, and it's so sad that we lost him on April first of '93 in the plane crash. But uh, yeah, it, it would have really changed the landscape, I think, had he continued on and been with us. He could have won several more championships, and and he would have been an awesome team owner for somebody else to drive for. But you would have had, like I said, you had to grow some really thick skin to drive for it. That's right. Uh, in well, the years to come. I'm going to admit something I've never admitted to anyone else. This is the first okay. time I'm going to admit this. Okay. This Lay it on me. It's been almost 30 years. I actually passed on not going to Atlanta for the final race of the 92 season. USA Today had asked me to go down there. And then my coworker, Beth Tushek, wound up going down there. But I mean, what a race that must have been. And I wasn't there, unfortunately, because you know that was the final race for Richard Petty. It was the first race for Jeff Gordon, and mm. it was Alan Kowicki who stole the, stole the championship away uh, from Elliott and winds up winning the whole thing. And I, like a dumb Yankee, passed on going <laughs> down there. You know, I mean, yeah. I've never said that, that told that story to anybody. I mean, I, I remember very clearly my my editor at the time. He'd asked me if I wanted to go down there. Uh, they were actually we we're, were going to double team the the, uh, the race, and I I can't remember if I had something going or what it was, but I backed out, and I'll forever regret that I wasn't there for that race because that would have been that has to be go down as one of the biggest races, the biggest upsets, and also the biggest elements of history. You know, with it being la- uh, Petty's last race and Jeff Gordon's first Cup race. I mean, it had to be a huge race. We're, we're, I'm curious, were you there at all or not? I, I was. I was you there, are. and okay. I was there, and it was the the toughest race to cover because every lap something different was happening, right. and it was the hardest thing in the world to keep up. You, you know, a lot of times what we'll do, and you, I'm sure you do it as well, is you sort of get your feel 
for what's going on when you'd write race coverage like that. You sort of get started a little bit and you sort of get a feel for what's happening. You couldn't do it in that race because every <laughs> right. lap, right. every lap, everything changed every single lap. I've never, I've never been to one like that. I've never had, I mean, you know, you just, you could not write the race till the thing was over because every lap Elliot's in the lead. Now Kowicki's in the lead. Now Elliot's in the lead. Yep. And then, you know, of course you had Davey Allison who all he had to do is finish fifth or better. And he was going to win the championship. And then suddenly it lapped, I think it was 258. He gets taken out by Arnie Irvin. Yep. And and then six or seven guys mathematically could have won that championship, had everything fallen the way that they could have fallen. And there was no disrespect to Ernie Irvin. Ernie got loose, cut a tire, something took Davey out. It wasn't anything mischief about it. Mm-hmm. It just happened. And so so here's Alan counting the laps in the car, radioing back to his crew. Can we make it? Can we make it? This guy's, you know, his crew chief, Paul Andrews, is like sweating bullets. I mean, <laughs> right. you know, and, and Ken Martin, I remember Ken Martin's a good friend of mine. And Ken Martin was, I remember, was working for ESPN. And Bob Jenkins and Benny Parsons are looking at him as like, who's going to win this championship? And Ken Martin's sweating bullets. I mean, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. This was the race of the century for, yep. for fans, for NASCAR. And it, fortunately, it came out. But it, Ken was telling me, he said, I really, my job was on the line here. I was about to say Elliot. And then I said, no, wait, it's Kawiki. No, wait, it's Elliot. <laughs> and I mean, oh, my gosh, Jerry, it was a tough, tough, tough race to cover. The greatest race in NASCAR history, in my opinion. I mean, it was it was really a nail biter of a race. No kidding. Well, I will say this, and I and I kind of. I'll pat myself on the back a little bit for this, even though okay. I missed that race. Okay. I missed that race out of stupidity. That was a dumb Yankee or whatever they, whatever, whatever the reason was I missed. I don't, I, I don't know if it was a family thing or whatever, but I will pat myself on the back for one thing. Cause I was there in Phoenix in 1988 mm-hmm. when Alan Kowicki won his first cup race. Okay. I, well that, that I wasn't there. So, you know, you made, <laughs> you, you made up for that. You know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, when he went around, you know, did the Polish victory lap. I mean, he just blew people away. And I, I think we, I talked about this a few weeks back, if I remember correctly, but you know, the one thing that I always remembered about that race, it was a great race, but it was when they brought Alan up to the, to the uh, media center the media center looked like it had not been cleaned out for like a couple of years. It was filled oh, with cigarette butts, dust, and all that kind of stuff. Oh, wow. And and you know, it was it was just I I I can't forget that thing. It was like, you know, that's 30 some years ago, almost 40 years. And I'd still remember that that day though. But um, well. you know, going back to to um uh, um uh, Jack Smith though for a second, you know, we talked about, you know, uh, I, I mentioned about him being in the hall of fame, and I want to talk a little bit about a guy that, you know, also drove the number 47, uh, as you mentioned earlier about Ron Bouchard from Massachusetts. And, you know, a guy that, um, you know, we lost him about what, six years ago, I guess I think it was, uh, you know, and he was, mm-hmm. he was so renowned, um, you know, with modified racing and that up in the, in the Northeast, um, you know, he was, I mean, he was Mr. Racer himself. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think, Maybe I'm, I'm I may have this wrong, but I seem to recall that he created like a almost like a, a hall, not a hall of fame, but a museum. I guess yes, yes, he did. Yeah, really nice museum up there. And and the car that he won at Talladega in 1981 is is still there. And right. you know, back a year or so ago, they brought the car out 
and Dale Earnhardt Jr. actually drove it at Talladega. Right, uh, right. Brought it back out. Yeah, right. and uh, but I'm telling you, that was an incredible race, as I as I've talked about in the lead-in there, because nobody saw him coming from anywhere at all, especially Daryl and Terry, because they were in their own dogfight. Right. And they had no idea that Ron was anywhere around or even on the lead lap. And suddenly all they, you know, they're looking at each other. Like, I, you know, I still like, I, I see them as cartoon characters and just like, you know, up on the wheel and they're gritting their teeth at each other. And I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you one of those deals. And all of a sudden here comes Ron out of nowhere yep. and he steals the show from them. They're like, well, where'd this guy come from? I didn't know he was anywhere around and suddenly he wins it. <laughs> But I mean, and, and kudos to to Ron because he gets the victory, and it's the greatest of all time Cinderella stories. Right. And um, you know, and and that was a really small team too, by the way. Jack Beebe's team uh, was uh, just not very big at all, but they were competitive every week. They were on the verge of doing something great, and he gets in the car and wins that race. But then, then you know, as I said in the piece, the side story was that this, it was a, either a telephone type transformer or a, some type of power transformer that went out and it was a major deal. And here's Ken Squire on the verge of calling this incredible race for CBS sports. And suddenly the video goes out. They don't right. have television video. They got the audio, but they don't have the video. And so I remember I was watching this thing myself and I see this graphic comes up on the television. It's like, what the hell? <laughs> Pardon my French. It's like this thing is coming down to the wire, three cars, two cars, I thought. And suddenly there's this graphic of two, you know, blurred race cars on the screen, but we can still hear Ken. Right. It's like, okay, what's up? What's up? What happened? What happened? What happened? And, you know, and and he, I don't know, I can't remember a kid knew what happened uh, or if he was just, well, of course, he had to just continue to do what he was doing, mm -hmm. calling the race. But it's like, where is the video? Where is the camera? Where is what, what? 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 And so we found out later that that of course Ron's dad did indeed throw the television across the room and destroyed the television. <laughs> but they showed it the next week on whatever figure skating or whatever the case was. The next week they showed the last five minutes of the race and apologized profusely for leave. And they explained what happened. There was right. a major power uh television some type of something happened where they didn't have the the video feed to it mm -hmm. and and it, they felt and i know they felt horrible but there's nothing they could do there was yep. no way to fix it in two and a half minutes or 40 seconds or whatever right and so um but yeah i distinctly remember it was going down it's like you can't be you got to be kidding me <laughs> there's no way that you could you can't just t take a turn away from this now this is the greatest finish of all time but yeah ron uh, ended up winning the race and and sadly uh, that was the only win he had and sadly we lost uh you know on december 10th of 20. 15, but a, a really neat guy because I had interviewed him a half a dozen or so time. And he had that very distinct uh, uh, Massachusetts Boston accent. And, yep. Uh, just, I mean, he's a holy terror behind the wheel of a modified. I can tell you that. He won a, a gazillion races up there uh, in the Northeast and came down and made his mark in NASCAR and was very well respected as a driver. But I just, it, it was so cool because nobody saw him coming. And Daryl did say, who, who is that? Where'd he come from? You know, it was just a great finish, a great finish. That's right, all right. I want to say. Well, you know, here's something that I'll, I'll throw a little bit of trivia at you. Yeah. J or, um, Ron wins that sole 
victory. It's his sole win in the Cup Series in his first year in the Cup Series. And here's another yeah. thing that I'll throw at you. I'm looking at racing reference. Thank God we have that because that's such an Yeah, you know, it is great to have it. Sure. So, so Ron, the let's see, the race in Talladega would have been, let's see, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 11th. Now, they had a race in Talladega earlier in the year. This was the second race in Talladega, the 20th race of the season. And so, you know, in, in he had he did fail to finish in one, two, three, four, five, uh, five of his first 11 starts. And he winds up winning in that 11th start, even though it was the 20th race of the season, that he winds up, you know, essentially stealing a win away from those guys. I mean, like you're saying, they, they, they probably wonder where the heck did this guy come out of, you know, that kind of thing. So, but, yeah. um, you know, just like, I mean, I, I think I met Ron. Oh gosh, it must've been, it had to be one of the first times, I think might've been the first time I was ever at, um, what was then known as New Hampshire International Speedway. Uh, I want to say it was maybe 2004 or five. That was probably around the time, the first time that I was there. And I, I remember he, they, uh, a couple of the other reporters that were from the Boston market were interviewing him and I didn't know who he was. And I asked somebody, I said, who is this guy? And they said, oh, you, you know, Ron Bouchard, and you may want to get yourself in there and just, you know, listen in. And I didn't write a story about him, but I do recall that the conversation, I mean, the interview was really uh, thought provoking. He really was a very smart guy an intelligent guy. And like you said, I mean, he was just a terror up there in the Northeast. I mean, they, they absolutely loved me. He, he was, he was probably as, as well beloved as any other driver in the Northeast. And I'm including guys like Ricky Craven and people like that. I mean, he just was that yeah. good of a driver though. Yeah, he really was. And, uh, you know, years after he he retired uh, from driving in the Cup Series in 1987, and they built a, a very successful business empire up there around uh, uh, where he was from, Fitchburg, mm-hmm. Massachusetts, and around Boston, and sold um, uh, cars and just a, a very successful businessman up there. And just hate that we lost him uh, in 2015, but just a lot of fun to talk to and uh, had a lot of great racing stories and a lot of and of course, I, do, I know that you talked about that victory at, at Talladega a bazillion times and <laughs> and, and enjoyed it because, he, you know, he, it was a great win for him. And that car, like I say, was in that museum. It might, I think it is still mm-hmm. up there and uh, uh, just uh, just a wonderful guy. Really a lot of fun to talk to. Great and guy. You know, and, you know, he also, uh, you know, not to um, belittle the one win he had in the cup series, which obviously was the biggest uh, highlight of his, uh, racing career in NASCAR, but he also had two wins in the, uh, then Bush series in NASCAR, two, yeah. two wins, eight top fives in 20 starts in the, or in the then Bush series. So, you know, the guy definitely knew how to, he knew how to get his way around the racetrack, but, you know, you mentioned about him retiring and I wanted to uh, mention something. We didn't talk about this before the show, but I just thought about it and I wanted to bring it up to you uh, a few days ago before we started tape, before we taped this uh, episode, episode number 47, we learned that Eric Almarolo has decided that 2022 is going to be his final season. He's retiring. You know, the guys, he's going to turn 38 here in a, in a few months. And uh, he's decided that he wants to spend more time with his family. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I credit him for making a decision like that. Uh, I still think that he, you know, he has not lost much. I think he could probably go race for another four or five years easily, but I give him, I give him a lot of credit that he's choosing his family. And, you know, sometimes it's just, you, you know, you, you travel so much and you just do so much that, 
you know, you want to be with your kids while they're growing up. I mean, I missed a lot of my kids' lives mm-hmm. when, they were, when they were growing up because I was on the road so much. And I'm sure you, you know, absolutely. So I give him credit for that. He's he's going to call, you know, this is we his final year, but uh, Eric Almarola definitely has made his mark on the world of NASCAR for sure. Absolutely. And I, I, I applaud him. And I, I, I'm just so happy that that's what he wants to do. And, you know, you reach a point where uh, you think, okay, am I having fun? That's the main thing. And if mm-hmm. it, if it's not to the point where he's enjoying what he's doing, then you know you reach a. You have to ask yourself, okay, am I am I endangering myself for one thing? Right. I mean, you're doing 200 miles an hour out there, and if you're not totally focused on what's going on and you're not happy, I don't know if that's the case or not. He he might be very happy, but at this time, you know, you you sort of have to have those conversations with yourself and say, okay, is is this the time? And you know what, you and I both are going to someday have that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. With ourselves and say, am I really having fun? Am I really enjoying this? And I've always been blessed with the mentality of, you know, someone, and you've heard this cliche too, that uh, as long as you enjoy what you're doing, you never work a day in your life. life. Right. Exactly. That's what you and I've done for many years, but there might come a time when we just, you know, you sit down in a media center or in our case and say, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. I've enjoyed it. It's time to maybe, uh, go and do something else. Well, that's where Eric is right now. It's, he knows in his heart and soul it's time. He sees his children growing up. It's a gr- you know even at thirty six races, it's a grind yep. uh, to be. You know, and and this is a telltale sign too. And it's happened to me. And I had to sort of take some time off when you're packing two suitcases and you <laughs> put one down and grab another. Yep. You know, it's just time. It's time to slow down a little bit. Maybe he's to that point. But he's a great guy. Great, great career. He's done a lot in his career, and he's won some races. and And hats off to him. If twenty twenty two needs to be the last one, great. And exactly. Well, you know, wish uh, him the best. And here's the thing about Eric that I'm not sure a lot of people um, recognize this or appreciate. I guess is an also another adjective I would I'd use. I mean, the guys made almost 400 career starts in the Cup Series over 14 years, 388 to be exact. And you mm-hmm. know, by the time his career is over, we know 36 more Cup starts, you know, knock on wood, he'll be pushing, you know, almost 330 wins, or three, I'm sorry, 430 uh, starts. And, you know, he's had three wins and hopefully he'll get at least another one or two in his final swan song year. But, you know, to me, Eric... I don't think we're going to see the last of Eric, maybe not so much Eric, the racer. I think Eric's going to find a way to maybe do something, maybe uh, still within the sport, maybe in a front office role or some kind of a way that, because I mean, he's, he's not only a friendly guy, he's an extremely intelligent guy. And I think that, you know, if, if he were to walk away totally from NASCAR and a lot of guys have done that, don't get me wrong, but I just think that he would really, bring a lot more to the sport if he would stay involved in some capacity, you know, a non-driving capacity. And I, I think that, you know, we may very well see that happen. And, but, you know, also too, this uh, with him announcing this, you know, essentially a year or at least 10 or 11 months before he's actually going to call it quits. This also kind of opens the door for who succeeds him. Now, Ryan Priest has been brought over to be like a test driver for Stuart Haas. Um, what do you think about that? I mean, would Ryan Priest be a potential heir apparent to replace an Eric Almirello in, uh, after the 2022 season? Or do you think Stuart Haas may go in another direction? I mean, what, what are your thoughts about 
who may fill Eric Almirello's seat, if you will, you know, going forward after the 2022 season? Well, well that's probably the first thing that uh, that Priest thought about. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know, I mean, when that news came down the pike, uh, yeah, uh, it, it's hard to say. Uh, I mean, you know, and that, I didn't read the release very closely, to be quite honest. It, was it uh, he's going to retire from full-time racing or he's going to retire completely? Retire completely, yeah. Okay, okay. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, that's it, it's interesting because that it, it opens the door. I know Priest would love to have the ride. Sure he would. And we'll see if that's the direction they want to go in or they might have their eye on somebody totally different, like um, hmm, a young I mean, guy. Yeah, really young yeah. guy. Yeah. Uh, how about Haley Deegan? I mean, Ooh, I like that. I like <laughs> you know, that. You know, I mean, that's just throw that little chip in the in the hat. Who knows? I mean, you know, there's uh, it depends on what Ford might want to do. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of things that could happen there. But uh, he's letting them know early on. So that gives them a whole year to think about where they what direction they want to go in might want to go really young or they might want to go experience. That's, that's the fun part. It's not something that they have to make the decision right away and they can really think it through and see what direction they want to go. But uh, yeah, but I know priests would love to have it. Sure. Right. Ben, I'm going to start a rumor here just between you, me and the wall. Okay. I'm I'm bringing my voice down a little bit lower here. Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. All right. Go for it. I'll tell you who's going to replace Eric Almarolo. All right. Who's that? Tony Stewart. He's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I will say this. Uh, for for a quarter of a tenth of a second, he probably thought about it. <laughs> and he said, nah, maybe not. Maybe you know, not. Exactly. Know. Exactly. Right, right. But well, he thought about it. You know, he thought about it. He's a racer. You know, he thought about it for a second. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Let's move on to our next segment of the, sh- of the uh, podcast, the Lifetime of NASCAR. You know, this weekend, we're taping this on Tuesday, and this weekend is the National Motorsports Press Association's annual Hall of Fame soiree, you know, the NMPA Awards, a nice uh, banquet you guys put on. Uh, I was a member for a long time. I was on the board. You've been a president uh, of the NMPA, and you're still on the board as well. Uh, yep. A lot of things going on. I know there's some weather concerns for the weekend, and again, we're taping this Tuesday. We, you know, I know this weekend there's uh, supposedly some weather concerns down in the Charlotte area, but, you know, it's always a good time to be involved and to be around the NMPA because I don't think a lot of fans really know about a lot about NMPA. I mean, you've got your hall of fame down at Darlington Speedway, Darlington Raceway rather. And I mean, right there in, in, you know, in the, uh, the offices there, great hall of fame. If you're ever down in the, you know, in the Darlington area, you definitely have to go through that hall of fame. It is just a really splendid facility to, I mean, taking nothing away from, (coughs) excuse me, the NASCAR hall of fame, but the NMPA Hall of Fame is definitely worth the admission price. Tell me about, uh, you know, you've been in the, with the NMPA for a long, long time. And it really is, I guess, kind of one of the last bastions, if you will, of the racing press having, you know, a significant role in racing. I mean, you know, there still are some other uh, associations like the Eastern Motorsports Press Association with Ernie Sexton who does a great job with his organization. Uh, there used to be the Auto Racing Writers and Broadcasters Association out of LA. That one, I guess, is kind of gone, I guess, essentially on hiatus. But NMPA, you know, is kind of the, the stellar 
uh, benchmark, if you will, for motorsports media that, you know, if you're a, a motorsports uh, reporter, broadcaster, what have you, producer, you know, you definitely want to be part of the NMPA. So tell me about, you know, this weekend and what, you know, what NMPA has meant to you over the years as well, too. Oh, it's, it's meant a great, great deal to me over the years, Jerry, and, and I've been honored to be a board member uh, several times uh, over the years, but also in 2018 and 2019 was honored to be president of the organization for two years. But yeah, and you know, you're right. Every year we uh, we have an induction ceremony in, in the Charlotte area. And, and because of COVID concerns, uh, we did not have uh, uh, an induction last year because of that. So what we're doing this year is we're going to induct a couple of well-known folks from from last year and then we're going to uh, add them to this year mm -hmm. but for 2021 the inductees are Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Steve Kinzer and just a little background because I don't have to tell you a huge amount about Dale Earnhardt Jr. everybody knows that guy I think right. we know who he that is guy. <laughs> that, <laughs> that guy <laughs> that guy I believe we know who he is of course but a uh, third generation driver uh, he's going to be inducted uh, uh, on Sunday uh, into our organization. We're real proud to have him going in. And he is, like I said, he was going to be uh, for 2021, and we just couldn't do a ceremony because of COVID-19 concerns. Uh, and then, of course, uh, and this is, we sort of stepped out a little bit on on Steve Kinzer because normally these are NASCAR-related drivers, but mm -hmm. we sort of stepped out of that a little bit more uh, to get some of these other folks in. Uh, because, I mean, we're honored uh, for Steve Kinzer to go in. He's a 20-time uh, champion. He's won uh, a world of outlaws, 20-time uh, champion there. Uh, collected 577 feature victories in world of outlaws. That's wow. incredible. Wow. Number 12 victories in the Knoxville Nationals. Uh, so, yeah, we're very honored to have him going in this year from, from 2021. And then... Of course, for the 2022 inductees, there are three uh, very well-deserving uh, folks going in. Dan Gurney uh, yes. is going to be going in. And then we have uh, crew chief Herb Knapp, who turned bridges on Kelly Yarborough's cars for Junior Johnson, uh, Leroy Yarborough for many years. And then we have Richard Howard, uh, also who is the sponsor of, of Richard, I mean, I'm sorry, Bobby Allison's cars. Mm -hmm. Uh, and also owned the cars that uh, Bobby Allison drove in uh, 1972. Uh, so, and he's, like I said, been a, a longtime sponsor of, of races, of cars. Uh, so, yeah, he'll, he has been inducted on Sunday as well. So, again, Dan Gurney, Herb Nab, Crew Chief, and Richard Howard. So, you have the five going in uh, to the NMPA. And the NMPA, National Motorsports Press Association, association has been around since 1965 and we have all the top top drivers team owners crew chiefs uh, over the years that's been inducted so i'm just like i said we're very honored uh, we are concerned about the uh, the weather forecast it's it's so odd in the charlotte area we might go 10 15 years and not have any major snowstorms not like like where you are in chicago area or some other parts of the United States, we really don't have that much snow. And here last week we had this coming out of a really bad snowstorm of ice and, and snow uh, that we're just trying to get over. And then we skip a few days, some 50s, mid 50s uh, 
then some rain coming up on Thursday that's going to freeze, and we go right back into another six or possible six, seven inches in ice. So we're praying that we can do this and everybody stay safe. But yeah, it's just, it's kind of odd that we're getting some snow. Believe me, we don't have a lot of snow in the Charlotte area. There's, the joke is that when we have a half inch or an inch, everybody goes nuts for milk and bread. Yep, yep, yep. 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 And even, even people that don't like milk and bread go get <laughs> milk and bread. So anyway, that's just kind of where we are around the Charlotte area. But yeah, give us an inch of snow and everybody goes berserk. So that's what we do. I've got to ask you, and I mean this in total humor, total humor. Yeah. Do they sell snowblowers in Charlotte? You know, I, <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, I don't think so. I, I really don't know the answer to that question. But, you know, we do go nuts for milk and bread. Yep, and yep. Gro- people go crazy for grocery. They'll eat things that they've never had before. Right. And it snows. <laughs> You know, well, and here's the thing, Joe Jerry. Here's the thing. This is the funny part. They'll buy people will buy a hundred dollars worth of groceries, and the storm's not going to last but a day. Yeah, right. And yep, it'll yep. it'll be in the fifties tomorrow. But they will just like Katie bar the door. We're going to go buy groceries. Yep. They're yep. not going to get stuck for like a day. It, the power's not going off. Yep. We're going to get a trace of snow. And everybody goes crazy. I'm sorry. I love everybody around this area, but I just don't get that part. Well, I'll, I really I'll tell you, don't get I'll, it. I'll tell you a funny story. I think it was, I want to say it was 2004 or 2005. And that was when, you know, we were still going through, uh, with the NASCAR media tour where we'd go from one location to another location. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I'm drawing a blank if it was actually at Rusty Wallace's place or if it was at Team Penske's place. But nonetheless, you know, it's, it's, I think it was like January 27th or 28th, whatever the date was. And I'm hearing all these gloom and doom forecasts. Oh, we're going to get snow. We're going to get ice. You know, we're going to get rain, yada, you know, freezing rain. And, you know, a guy from Chicago and, you know, watch, just watch. I'm going to say this in two days from now, we're going to probably get hit with a blizzard. It comes out of nowhere here in Chicago. Just mark my word. It's just kind of mm-hmm. my luck, but I'll never forget. I was going up Interstate 77 going and I and I'm pretty sure it was Rusty Wallace's place. I'm pretty sure I think as opposed to Penske. But anyway, so as I'm driving along, I see one wreck on the southbound lanes. I'm going northbound. Then I go about a half a mile, another wreck, then a semi into the ditch. I mean, there must have been five wrecks on the southbound lanes uh, within maybe a mile and a half, two miles. And I'm saying to myself, people just don't. No, they've forgotten how to drive in, you know, in this Charlotte area. Whereas me, I'm just puddling along. Oh, it's a little slippery. Okay, I'll slow down. You know, I'll, I'll do 45 instead of 55. And you know, I see these other cars going past me at 90 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, the thing is that I feel for you guys down there because, like, uh, you know, this past weekend, like in Asheville, they had record snow. I think they had 10 or 12 inches down there. And you know, it's it's you would think that at some point, even though you only have maybe one decent sized snow a year and you you do have ice but like you said i mean the typically what you have one day it melts away the next day but i still would think that they would they would have some kind of an infrastructure that would make it easier because you know there's a lot of people that have moved to the charlotte area over the last 10 15 20 years that either may come from areas where they don't get a lot of snow or they do come from areas that have a lot of snow, but they forgot how to drive, you know, once they get down there. Yeah. Yeah, Well, the thing, the thing about us here though, and I'm not, I'm not making light of this latest one because it, 
this morning it was uh, a law about a heavy layer of ice okay right mm-hmm. and and then there was some snow on top of that so so when we get them there are times we really get them and but you know in in this case it was like i guess five and six inches on top of ice so this one was significant right, right. And, and this one coming could be significant but there are times when we get like here's a good example the other day a couple weeks ago we got this beautiful snow and it was really, really pretty. And it's mm-hmm. probably a couple of inches or so to it. And then by two o'clock that day, it was all gone. So I'm just saying there are some folks that just do go crazy when it snows. And, uh, and it's kind of funny to watch, but it's, you know, the laugh is that they'll buy a hundred dollars worth of groceries and it's, <laughs> it's gone in a day or so. And, now there are times. Now this one was a concern that we might lose power because it, it was ice on the trees and ice on the lines. Now this one was legitimate, and there was con- some some concern. Thankfully, we didn't lose power where we are. Some people did, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, there's some when you get a little trace of something that people do that. But anyway, exactly. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, you have a good induction at the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame. Uh, dinner and induction ceremonies this coming Sunday. And, uh, you know, every time I ever went to one of those things, uh, uh, enjoyed myself, won a few awards as well over the years as well. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wishing you guys have, have good weather, you have a good time. And well, thank uh, you. Kudos to uh, to everybody that's going to be inducted, including that guy. <laughs> yeah, that guy. Who is that guy? Uh, that's right, what's that's his right. name? That's right. so, yeah, some right. Earnhardt guy. I don't know. Some guy named Earnhardt. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> all right. We're going to go into the final segment of this uh, weekend's uh, or this week's show. And this is one, the uh, regular feature we talk about every week. And it's the track of the week. And, you know, this one, Ben, um, I, I'm just going to let you handle this because I know I've heard of this place. I've never been there. And in, for, to the best of my knowledge, it's no longer in existence, but it's probably a, a, a subdivision or maybe a shopping center or what have you. But what is our track of the week this week on the Lifetime of NASCAR? Well, the track of the week this week is Savannah Speedway. And it's a, just it was a small track, uh, about a half mile track right outside of the city. Uh, and, it, and there from about 1962 to 1970, the NASCAR's Cup Series and the Grand National Series visited the track. And you had some well-known uh, folks that won there. Uh, you know, for instance, Bobby Allison won there. Richard Petty won there. Uh, you know, and, and it was well-known uh, on the circuit for quite some time. Uh, like I say, for about eight years. I think they had 10 races there. Uh, and of course, when Winston or RJ Reynolds came in, they cut out a lot of those, uh, you know, some of the short tracks mm-hmm. that, that they raced in those years. But uh, I, one, of, one of my fondest memories, you know, that just to give you a little backstory, when I was uh, 15, 16, 17, I uh, went, I worked at Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, and my job was working for one of the uh, one of the stores there flipping burgers and scooping ice cream. And I was, it was like summer jobs between high school. And uh, I would turn on on Saturdays, I would turn on the radio and I'd park my car in a certain way, like they did in the <laughs> old days, where I could listen to races at Savannah Speedway. And Bobby Allison would race there uh, in between the cup races. He'd go down when it was, when he was closed in that area. Uh, in conjunction to the Cup Series, 
he would uh, race there at Savannah. So you'd, but to get the station, it was an AM station and you had to park your car a certain way <laughs> to get it in. But I remember listening. I never went to Savannah Speedway uh, as a fan, but I would always try to get it on the radio. And he won a bunch of races there at Savannah. Uh, as many of the short tracks did, uh, it, it went to uh, to the way of no, no longer being there. Um, but yeah, Bobby won some races there. Richard Petty did, uh, I think fireball Robertson, Rex white won there in the sixties. Uh, just again, one of those great tracks that's no longer there. Sort of like the Myrtle beaches and the, you know, the Columbia's all these great, great tracks that we weren't able to save, but yes, just a familiar, wonderful race track, but I just got fond memories of listening to it, uh, on the, those races, just hearing my heroes, uh, take those uh, 66 and 65 Chevelles, you know, yep. and cut cut the fenders out where the, the short track wheels would fit. And, you know, Bobby ran the Coca-Cola sponsorships, not only on his cut cars, but he ran them on the short tracks too. And great. just just a great, a great, great racetrack over there, just kind of short dirt track. And they did pave it for a while, and they went back to dirt before it met its demise, I think. Wow, that's interesting. Well, you know, we didn't talk about this before the show, but I wanted to, since we're talking about short tracks, you know, we're going to have a very uh, significant race here in a couple of weeks at Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum. We're going to have the mm-hmm. Bush Light Clash, and it's going to be a half, I'm sorry, a quarter mile track that NASCAR has built spe- you know, specifically for this particular race, a 75,000 seat capacity in the, um, actually 77,500, actually 77,500 people can fit in that place. And NASCAR is building a track. It's about, from what I've read, it's about a million dollars. But I'm, I'm curious, Ben, because when you said short tracks, uh, talking about Savannah Speedway, I have not heard anything about this, but I'm curious if you have, because you're uh, very well tuned into the, the NASCAR world. Will NASCAR make this almost like an annual event? Because the reason I ask is I read something somewhere a few days ago that obviously we know that California Speedway is going to be um, repurposed, if you will, and, and they're going to cut that down from a two-mile oval to a half-mile oval, and we'll probably see that racing there in about 2023 or 2024 once this, the track is finished completion. But could NASCAR, in theory, have two short track races in the LA market? Would they come? I mean, have you heard if they're going to come back to the LA Coliseum? Or is this just a one-off? I mean, I'm kind of curious. I don't, NASCAR, I don't think, really has said much about that. I'm, I'm curious what you've heard, if you've heard anything at well, all about it. I, I haven't heard anything about it, Jerry. But if what what strikes me is the fact that you had mentioned that they put a million dollars into it. And to me, I, I don't. I don't think they would put that kind of money into it and just walk away from yeah, it, really. Right, right. I think... Um, in my opinion, I mean that if you're if you're making a half mile track at Auto Club and then you're and you've got the million dollar investment into that one, I really think so. I think if you spent that kind of money on it, um, yeah, it makes all the sense in the world to to not just let it be a one off venue. I think they'd be smart to come back to it uh, and do something with it. Because again, it's it's if you put that kind of money into it, sure, I, I think it'd be a bad business investment or a bad business choice to to drop it in there, run seventy five laps on it, and walk away. Exactly I, right, right. Yeah, I, I think I think they they've got to have a long time long range business plan for it, 
And, uh, you know, because that seems to be the trend to want to create action. If you're going to create action, it seems to me like you do it on a short track. And, uh, and the plot, I promise you this, from all the times I've seen races at Pullman Gray Stadium in Winston-Salem, there will be action. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, I promise you that. And think about this. If there's 36 drivers, and I, I, if I read that correctly, there are 36 entries, mm-hmm. and you put 36 cars on a half-mile racetrack, you're almost whoever's a quarter mile. Quarter mile. Or excuse me. I meant, mile, yeah. Thanks for that's even more. Me. Yeah, it's even more. Yeah, problems. I meant I meant to say quarter mile. I, I said that I meant to say quarter mile. So the guy who's in 36 is already by the time he takes the green flags already a half a lap down. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. So uh, yeah, he's uh, he's already behind the eight ball, and uh, by the time he takes the green, so yeah, it's it's going to be uh, that's a lot of cars on a quarter mile. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to, I mean, you know, LA Memorial Coliseum, you know, they, it's no stranger to racing events. There's been a lot of like motocross and they've had, uh, you know, the monster trucks have been there and things like that. So I'm really pumped up for this kind of race because yes, you're right. I mean, for NASCAR to put a million dollars or report a million dollars plus into uh, configuring this track and setting it up and, you know, all the promotions gone along with it, all the, um, you know, all the hype that's gone into it, the PR efforts, and there's going to be a lot more coming up in the next two weeks. Cause there's, I'm sure that you know when you talk about like um you know tv shows there's gonna be a lot of press out there you know with, with the with the drivers coming out there um and you know that's also the week before the super bowl and you know for them to have a race the week before the super bowl uh you know is going to be a big thing because a lot of mm-hmm. fans are coming to la for the super bowl so you know if they want to get out of the cold weather and uh uh, they want to have some fun in the sun, if you will. Uh, what better place than to go to LA Memorial Coliseum, see racing, and then maybe the next day go to the beach or what have you. And so I'm looking forward to it. Oh, me too. And I, I'm certain that they have some friends high up at City Hall too, because it take you know, have you ever tried to get a permit to do something <laughs> in a hurry? It never happens. Exactly. So I know uh, a builder's permit, things like that. So uh, yeah, they've got some, they've got some friends in high places, I know. Because uh, all of a sudden there was no asphalt and nothing done. And suddenly we're, and I guess they're in the final stages. I hope hope they are. What is today? (laughs) I hope they, I hope they got that baby ready because the the clock is ticking and uh, yeah, for sure. Well, I'll tell you, I am so optimistic about this race for a a reason that you are going to be totally surprised what I'm about to say. Okay. Okay. Lay it on me. Okay. I'm really looking forward to this because it is going to be a quarter mile track, you know, as opposed to like Bristol and, and uh, Martinsville are essentially half mile tracks. But it's a, so it's half that length for both those races. But, you know, to me that NASCAR is doing this, they're bringing a short track of that type back to racing. I've been saying this for the last probably 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. I hope to God before I pass away and leave this earth that if NASCAR is going to go in this direction, maybe, just maybe, we can see another race on the beach down in Daytona. That's my well, That goal. would be cool. <laughs> that would really be cool. I'd love to see that also. I think that'd be a blast. And and, that, and let's take it a step further. It's Even if you put a, let's say, put a 49 or 50 Mercury body on a Gen 7 chassis. Right. <laughs> let's do that. But, uh, I, hey, why not? You know, nothing's impossible. I, I do hope that I'll say this. I hope that the fries, the vinegar fries, and the hot dogs <laughs> at this at the uh, LA Coliseum are as good as the ones at Bowman Gray. They That's they right. really are. They really are good. The food is 
is affordable. The racing's great. The atmosphere is great when you go to Bowman Gray. That's why it's so successful. So I hope they, they, uh, you know, they do the same sort of thing at, over there too. It's just good old, great food and good racing at a short track. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Bowman Gray that is also a quarter mile track, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah it, it is. Plaza. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. it sure is. And uh, yeah, it's it's, a, it's. I was talking to Tyler Reddick about this not long ago. He seems to think it's not going to be exactly the same, but a lot of people say it's going to be pretty close. It's going to be fun. You know? I'll tell you that. Too. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's going to be a blast. It's going to be fun to see. All right. But well, the that... guys doing the body work. You know, they're going to need some help because there's going to be a lot of body work after that. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, yeah. there, was, there was a story, and I'm, I'm trying to remember where I saw it. It was in the last few days that there was some concern by some of the, the smaller teams that will be taking part in the, in the Bush Light Classic that because of the supply chain shortage, that there's concern that if a car that they take out to the West Coast gets involved in a mishap, they may have some problems getting parts and that yeah. kind of thing in the early part of the season, which is a serious, serious thought for a lot of these teams. So uh, I hope to God that, you know, we have a fairly clean race, but when you have 36 cars on a half mile, I mean, I'm sorry, a quarter mile track, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, I think it's going to be anything but a clean race. It's going to be, there will be a lot of contact in that race. It will sure. be a lot of, it will be a lot of sheet metal that will be uh, beat up. I'm, I'm going to tell you now, it's going to, exactly. A lot of that's going to happen. Yes. All right. Well, my friend, this brings to conclusion episode number 47 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. Ben, as always, had a lot of fun in this race and uh, or a lot of fun. Of, yeah, this is always a race for us, you know. But yeah, it no, is. It a is. lot of fun in, in the, again, as always. And I wish you guys, you know, good weather and uh, a safe uh, awards banquet, the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame uh, induction and banquet. And you also have the media awards you always have every year. Uh, mm-hmm. this Sunday here down there in Concord, in suburban Charlotte. And uh, we will catch you next week on another edition, edition episode number 48. And gee, 48. Mm. That sounds like a really familiar car number. Hmm. Yeah. We're going to yeah, have that one next week for sure. There'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot of, a lot of wins for that number. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ben, my friend, thank you ever so much again. And we will talk to you next week on an episode, on uh, the next episode, episode number 48 of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. Take care, everyone. Have a safe weekend. And we'll catch you next week on a Lifetime in NASCAR.
Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.